Red on yellow, kill a fellow. Red on black, friend of Jack. Some species use bright colors in different combinations to tell potential predators to back off, bub. Eat me and you'll be sorry. But not always. Throughout the animal kingdom, species have evolved ways of faking out their enemies. Dr. Allison Davis-Roboski tells us about nature's con artists, the mimics, and how these crafty creatures can actually drive evolution in their poisonous counterparts. This is Radio Bio. Don't know much biology. Hello and welcome to Radio Bio. I'm your host, Kinsey Brock. I'm Jeff Lauder. We are here joined today by Dr. Allison Davis-Roboski, Assistant Professor and Assistant Curator of the Museum of Zoology at the University of Michigan. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you study? Well, so yes, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Michigan. Um, I'm a herpetologist, which means that I study reptiles and amphibians. Um, I generally think of myself as an organismal biologist, right? I'm really interested in how organisms function, how they came to be that way, um, and how they might change in the future. Uh, one of the things I'm most interested in is uh, color variation, so uh, which animals have which color patterns and why, and especially when we see incredible variation in color patterns. Um, that's the things that make me most excited about research. So how did you get into biology in general? Did you like grow up always knowing that you wanted to be this amazing herpetologist that studies all the different colors that they are? Yeah, so no, I didn't really have a strong background in science. Uh, none of my family members or anybody that I knew was a scientist. I think the only thing I thought scientists could do was be medical doctors. Mm -hmm. um, those were sort of the only scientists I ever interacted with, you know, doctors and dentists. <laughs> uh, so I went, to, I went to college not entirely sure what I wanted to major or what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but I started pre-med because that's what many people come in in terms of what their major is. Um, and then I took a class on animal behavior. And uh, this was in Southern California. And one of the labs that we did was to go out into our local botanic garden and uh, lasso a bunch of lizards. And we painted their bellies with different colors um, and then introduced them to other lizards' territories to see what would happen. And I thought it was the best thing I'd ever done. Like. <laughs> Lassoing lizards is not super easy, actually, when you haven't done it before. Um, and so a bunch of novices out there running around the botanic garden, none of us could catch anything. But I, but I loved it so much, I would not give up. And so everybody came back with like one or two, and I was like, I have 20. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that's when I realized that maybe I probably should not be a medical doctor, and maybe I would be more excited, um, you know, going into a profession where I studied science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a learning curve, right? But I, I said, if this is what real scientists do, sign me up. I'm, I want to do it too. So you got the lizard fever, <laughs> the herp fever. Well, so a lot of your work now has transitioned into combining behavior with color, like you said. So what specifically about color do you research? So um, color is one of the easiest things to study because we as primates are very visually oriented. We have reasonably good color vision. Um, although there are definitely animals that have better vision than we do. Um, and so color is one of those signals that is easy to quantify. It's very visible to us. And it, um, the reason I've been working on it is because uh, the systems that I study, coloration has converged. So it means two different organisms have basically evolved the same color pattern um, that matches each other. And so it's one of the best examples of evolution in action this idea of convergence. And so it's very striking and easy to talk about um, and easy to quantify. 
can you give us an example of maybe one of the species that you work with and can you describe like their color and their behavior? So I've worked on a couple of different color systems. Probably the one that's most recognizable to uh, the general public has been coral snake mimicry. So um, coral snakes are these venomous snakes that are actually related to cobras. Um, we have a few species in the United States, um, <clears throat> but they have a very unique and interesting color pattern. So there'll usually be uh, some permutation of very striking crosswise bands that come in red, black, and a white or a yellow. Um, and so they're very distinct visually, and so people can see them easily in, in habitats if, they, if, they're, if the snakes are out, um, and they're pretty easy to identify as being a coral snake. Except that <laughs> there are some species that are harmless, so they're not venomous at all, but they have the very similar color patterns. And here in the United States, there's a little rhyme that people use to try to um, identify which of them are safe to touch and which of them are not, about red touches yellow, kill a fellow, red touches black, venom lack, or friend of Jack. Yeah. There's all sorts of permutations about it. Um, but that doesn't work outside of the United States. Uh -huh. So <laughs> so don't touch them. Don't Just don't touch the red and black banded snakes. <laughs> so. Do we know like why red and black bands is associated with like toxicity or noxiousness in snakes or any animal really? Yeah, so certainly, I mean, if you think about venomous insects, right, so bees and wasps, they also have this banding, right, and they, they've converged on a yellow and black coloration. Um, and so this red and black, although there will be definitely species that have a yellow or a white component in there too, um, it seems to be something about the, the vertebrate vision system, right? Maybe the way that photoreceptors work and sort of what wavelengths they detect seem to, um, these sort of banding patterns, right? And the colors that are, that are that are incorporated in the in the patterns tend to be ones that trigger a, a strong visual response, yeah. uh, in especially the vertebrate visual systems. Is the sort of working hypothesis as to why it seems to be the same colors or the same orientation of colors across things that are as wildly different as wasps and snakes. Mm -hmm. So how does this coloration even evolve in the first place, though? So what's eating these snakes and do they think of the snake as like the snake's going to attack me or if I eat it I'm going to get sick like how does that kind of back and forth play between the predator and the snake happen yeah so most snakes are definitely some variation on brown most snakes are very cryptically colored uh, as someone who studies snakes I spend a lot of time walking around in nature trying to find snakes and they're really really hard because mostly they're quite camouflaged um, that's even more true when I go to the tropics, where there's you know tropical forest. It's a very complex habitat. Um, I have some videos that I've taken of just walking through a trail in the Peruvian Amazon, and it's just plants everywhere. You can barely find places to step. They have to clear paths all the time because the jungle just grows over it. And somewhere amid this very complex, you know, plant everywhere kind of habitat, you have to find these snakes. And um, you know, I'm positive as I walk through the jungle, I'm missing probably 90% of the snakes that are out there because they're so well camouflaged or they're in root systems in places I can't access them. Um, so it's actually quite rare and special to find, to find a snake. Um, and it's very hard for predators. So, so things that eat snakes, you know, we don't have a whole lot of great data on what the main predators of snakes, especially someplace like the tropics, because 
it's just hard. They're it's hard. They're hard places to work, right? And so we don't have a lot of data about what animals do. There. And it seems like if something eats something, then it's gone. So you don't really know what ate it. Yeah. So so we do some. I mean, not me, but other scientists will do um, studies about what the stomach contents are of of let's say birds that they catch. Or sometimes um, adult birds will come bring food back to the nest to feed their babies. So you can look at sort of the the bits of prey items that are scattered around the nest, um, or sometimes people put cameras up to, you know, nest cams um, to watch what the babies are doing. You can you can see what, what food items are brought there. And usually with cameras, you can do a pretty good job identifying, you know, what sort of, what sort of prey items are there. Um, but yeah, it's a big open question. Probably snakes mostly get eaten by other snakes. Birds and mammals are probably the big, the big three. But sometimes we've even seen snakes getting eaten by invertebrates. There are sometimes very large spiders or centipedes <laughs> that can definitely eat a snake. And so why is the coloration of, let's say, a toxic snake even a deterrent to be eaten? Do they think that, like, again, are they going to be attacked by the snake or that it's toxic to them if they eat it? So the idea is that, yes, it's a sign of the toxicity. So it's not that the snake is attacking them. Generally, snakes don't attack a predator. Snakes most often run away from me when I'm trying to catch it. I have to run after the snake, right? Um, But uh, it is most things that have some kind of uh, venom or toxicity associated with them have some kind of signal that they give to the predator and usually it's coloration not always there can be um, signals that have to do with what they smell like or or um, what they sound like this warning coloration is called aposematic coloration these bright colors and snazzy patterns are a warning signal that advertises a negative dining experience to potential predators since animals can't talk to each other it's an evolved form of visual communication Hey, don't eat me. I'm going to taste awful and make you sick. Dr. Davis Raboski studies how some animals evolve this coloring without the toxicity. This is called mimicry. Uh, One of the exciting mimicry examples you guys have here in California is that gopher snakes have an anti-predator display that makes them look a bit like rattlesnakes. They shake their tail very fast. They kind of vibrate it within whatever dead grasses or leaves are around, and it sounds a bit like a rattlesnake, right? So that would be one example of auditory mimicry, sound signals that that sound like something venomous. And then, you know, predators have two ways, basically, that uh, they uh, evolve a way of avoiding things that are toxic. So one is to learn, right? So you have a really bad encounter (laughs) with something. for butterfly mimicry, uh, you know, monarchs are one of the, you know, one of the toxic butterflies. And if, let's say, something like a jay comes in and eats a monarch, it will immediately throw it up. It's a very bad experience, but it doesn't kill the jay. It just makes it sick. Um, so, but it will then learn to avoid that coloration um, in the future. And so monarchs are avoided and things that mimic monarchs, other butterflies, are also avoided. The other way that it happens is through natural selection. So birds have a lot of variation in how bold they are about trying unknown prey items. And some of them are very wary about trying things that are colored differently or, or um, look different from sort of whatever the prey is that, let's say, their parents brought to them and fed them at the nest. It's called neophobia, right? And so those, those birds that happen to be really wary of eating new things won't, get, won't make an identification mistake where they, where they um, 
you know, try to eat a, something like a coral snake and die. So that the ones they will go on to make lots of neophobic babies, <laughs> and eventually you get a whole population of ones that are that are uh, pretty conservative about what they eat. I think that makes a lot of sense because at first, when you first hear about the coloration of a toxic animal, you almost think, but it has to be eaten for its color to mean anything. So it's almost like, is it really a deterrent, or is it like? hey, you don't know I'm toxic until you eat me, so just not being found in the first place is more beneficial. Neophobia, I think, makes more sense in a way that it would, like, propagate through multiple generations, yeah. So you can imagine if you have a distribution, like you have you have a, a line that shows variation from really scared of new things to totally not afraid of new things, and you have sort of a, a bell curve that shows, you know, how, how bold individuals are. You can imagine if all the super reckless ones all go after coral snakes and get eaten, then that changes what the distribution looks like. You lose a whole end, a whole tail of that distribution. It will be gone in the next generation. And so you can very quickly evolve a population that is very careful about what they eat. Yeah, they're dying out. They're not passing on their genes. The wary folks who are like, mm, maybe I won't try that, are passing on their genes and you get the evolution of weariness. And so, avoidance. And avoidance, yeah. yeah. So... More on coral snakes, what what aspect of their behavior are you interested in and their mimics? So coral snakes, well, snakes in general, I think, are pretty exciting because not only do they have a lot of variation in color, um, but they also have a lot of variation in how they display those colors, right? So um, when a snake perceives a predator, you know, there are a couple of different strategies it can employ, right? There can be a total just escape strategy, which is run without legs <laughs> as fast as possible. <laughs> um, there can be the freeze um, strategy where you just try to avoid detection. If you don't move, maybe the predator won't see you, right? And then there can be um, move a lot and display your colors and try to advertise yourself as something that is not worthy of being eaten for whatever reason, whether it's toxicity or because it's so big and strong that it'll escape if you try to chase it, right? There, there's all sorts of different strategies that different animals use to deter predators from even trying to, to chase them. Um, and uh, so coral snakes not only have this beautiful coloration, um, but they do a very stereotypical display of that coloration where um, they thrash their bodies around and they kind of curl both their tails and their heads so it's unclear which part is actually the tail and which part is actually the head and they move them underneath the body and over the body so it's all very confusing they do this it's sort of like a um, like a magic trick where you're trying to follow the card yeah right <laughs> and it's shuffling all around and then or or the cups with the you know ball underneath and you have to if it's a lot like that it's like a snake charmer but they're doing the charming <laughs> exactly exactly um and usually on the underside of their tail are, are even brighter colors than they have on their back and they sort of wave that tail around and so um, they do a very stereotypical display and so the idea is that that actually is helpful to deterring predators but not a lot of people have tested it because it's a very difficult test to do if you put a coral snake and a bird for example in an let's say an arena together to sort of see what happens it's probably not going to work out so well actually for either the bird or the snake and yeah. so from animal welfare perspectives that's not the kind of test that scientists run mm -hmm. um, so one of the things we're doing is actually making snake robots so these robots that are powered by air um, but we can make them move like a snake but then color them in whatever combination of colors that we want to test mm -hmm. um, and then there's no harm to snakes and no harm to birds by running that kind of experiment to see how important is the display how important is the coloration do they have to be 
in combination in order to make a very effective signal. Yeah, well, and you can do that way better with a robot than you ever mm-hmm. could with live animals, right? Because you can do the same thing over and over again or tweak it just a little bit so you can have a control and actually see what matters, not just the coloration or just the movement or both like you can actually disentangle those things that's really innovative in a very standardized way right so you can run the same experimental protocol on a lot of different birds Um, and the other exciting thing is you can make combinations that don't exist in nature you could test um, theoretical combinations that maybe existed in the past but we don't see in the standing diversity of snakes today um, to get some idea about how you might transition from a snake, let's say, that has a freeze response to a snake that has one of these stereotypical displays. So we, we know that like coral snakes do these displays. Do the mimics do the same behavior as the coral snakes? So they have like the mimics that don't have venom, have similar color pattern, color and patterns, but do they do the same anti-predator response? So it's a similar situation to the one I described with with gopher snakes and rattlesnakes, right? That rattlesnakes will shake their tail and then gopher snakes shake their tail and they have the same sort of coloration, these blotchy patterns on their back. Um, so coral snakes and their mimics have the same thing. So it's a very differently different looking be- anti-predator display. Um, so it's a, they don't shake their tails in the same way as a rattlesnake does, um, but they seem to be very similar, so at least some of the mimics. Um, and at least some of the coral snakes will have very similar displays where when I show the videos, let's say, to even trained scientists, and I say, which one do you think is the coral snake? Most people cannot tell, Um, including us in the field. We have lots of videos of us being like, what is it? (laughs) We don't know which one. I think it's not a coral snake. And we treat everything we can't identify as if it's venomous so that we can be safe in the field. And you will pass on your genes (laughs) to the next generation that will do the same thing. That's That's correct. Lovely. Natural selection. And what's really cool is it kind of brings up the like nature versus nurture argument. So do we think that the behavior is kind of evolutionarily related to the coloration or is it a learned behavior? Like, is it actually a behavior that itself is passed on? Like, how does that anti-predator behavior even kind of come about? That's a great question and something that, you know, as far as I understand, nobody's tested very well. But I would say the idea is that because most snakes do not have parental care, you know, the babies never meet their parents, right? Eggs are laid, you know, in a nest somewhere and then they hatch and that's it. So there's less opportunity for learning, right? It's it's really more about innate responses to things. So the same way that we're talking about birds having variation in how likely they are to try a new kind of prey, right? Snakes have the same variation in sort of what they do under a stress response, right? So, you know, the idea is that seeing a predator um, induces a stress cascade. Um, and so they, they have different ways of dealing with that, the same way humans have different ways of dealing with stress, mm-hmm. right? But there tend to be some kind of stereotyped ways of responding, and people have variation, but, you know, it's, it's compartmentalized <laughs> or categorical. And the ones that do those displays, if they are truly effective at deterring predation, will again be the ones to pass their genes on into the next generation. So could mimicry actually be kind of cheaper biologically because it seems like the toxic species has to be toxic and then also have this coloration and the mimic only needs the coloration so is it almost like easier to be a mimic in a weird way like bioenergetically um so there was one fantastic uh hypothesis that was put out um by a guy named robert mertens in the 50s he was a german herpetologist who studied reptiles who actually died from a venomous snake bite. He's one of, there are a couple of those famous herpetologists that... Um, R.I.P. Yeah. 
Um, but he had this idea that there would be um, sequential evolution of models and mimics. So one of the ways in which um, coral snakes might benefit right, from being part of a mimicry system is that it actually allowed them to become more toxic, not just to their predators, but also to their prey. Um, and so he envisioned a scenario where first there was just coral snakes that have the coloration and they had sort of a medium level of toxicity. And then as mimics started to come into the system, um, all of them sequentially become more and more toxic. So actually the mimics tends, will, will develop toxicity and become more toxic and the coral snakes will become even more. And then you get new mimics that join the system and sort of it's this ongoing arms march, right? All <laughs> where, where toxicity keeps elevating, elevating, elevating. And it has benefits not just for deterring predation, but also for acquiring prey, right? They mostly envenomate their prey, not their predators. So the coral snakes are venomous. Some mimics evolve to look like the venomous coral snake, but then some mimics themselves are venomous. So what are the difference between these two things? There, there are these like fake mimics, like they're, they're not going to be able to hurt anybody. And then there are actual mimics that converge copycats. on a feed. Yeah, copycats, they're the same. And they're also venomous. So like what, what's going on there? So in general, there have been sort of two ways people classify mimicry, right? There's ones that involve uh, the there's venomous species and totally harmless species, mm -hmm. and that's called Batesian mimicry. Um, and then there are other, another form of mimicry where every species is toxic, and so they're sort of simultaneously models and mimics. Every species is mimicking all the other species sort of all at once. And a great example of that is, you know, something like bees and wasps, mm -hmm. right? You know, you might think that they're closely related, but they're actually not that closely related, um, but they both have the same phenotype. If you think about, you know, what a yellow jacket looks like and what a honeybee looks like, they have that same sort of yellowish and black banding on their abdomen. Um, that's a signal, as you have probably experienced, of a very bad sting that you want to avoid. Um, and so, so, you know, I'm not the first one to talk about this, but maybe it's not as quite as categorical as people sort of like to classify things, that maybe there isn't the stark delineation between definitely non-toxic and definitely toxic, mm -hmm. right? And that maybe there's this much more of a continuum um, and that it's not a, a, something that never changes. So things can be to really toxic maybe for, you know, um, a few million years and then become less toxic. And so it's this, it's this more of a shifting mean rather than, than something that has to be categorized. For a few million years. So how would we be able to know if something evolved toxicity and then lost it? Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a problem that lots of evolutionary biologists, I think, struggle with, is how do you reconstruct what something looked like or what traits something had in the past? Um, so for some questions, we can use fossils, right? If, you're, if you've got a question about what a bone looked like in the past, like let's say ear bones in you know, fish to uh, amphibians, you can look at fossils and see what those ear bones look like and how they might have changed over millions of years, especially as, let's say, early tetrapods came out on land, right, and needed to hear in air, which is a very different kind of medium from water. Mm -hmm. You can study fossils in order to, to see what that transition looked like. For something like coloration or toxicity, we don't have those 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 traits in the fossil record, right? That's yeah. not something that actually can preserve and turn into a fossil. Um, and so we do something a little bit different, which is just use statistics to try to infer 
things we cannot see. So we make something called a phylogeny, which is just basically a diagram that shows the relationship among species. Um, and so some species will be more closely related to each other than other species. Um, and we know for the species that are alive today, let's say we know what their coloration is, we know what their toxicity is, right? And so you can actually use statistics to look backwards in time along that, that tree of relatedness and try to reconstruct, well, the last time those two species shared a common ancestor, what did it likely look like? Um, and you'd think that that would be a really hard math problem, but actually we do a pretty good job mm -hmm. of trying to infer what, what traits existed in time we can no longer see. And so do we find evidence that toxicity has been gained and lost? Um, no one's done that test yet. <laughs> it's one of the things we'd like to do, right? Um, um, one of the, you know, you, you asked about, you know, mimics being toxic, and that's sort of a, a, a revolutionary idea in terms of what we actually have data for. We know that a lot of mimics are toxic to their prey, um, although we don't know what compounds they use for that. We just know that when you look inside their mouths, you see teeth that um, are enlarged relative to other parts, other, other teeth they have in their mouths, and that those tend to be connected to, to glands that are secreting something, <laughs> which we assume is toxic, right? Um, but for lots of species, we, we don't know how toxic they are, um, and, we, and no one's ever reconstructed for the mimics, right? The origins of toxicity, that's, it's a truly unknown at the moment. What about, okay, yeah, so the venom one's a, a hard problem because of fossilization of those glands. Um, and, but you also said color is a problem. Do we have any hypotheses or ideas or evidence that the mimicry colors or mimicry has been gained and lost through time. Yeah, so that's an easier one to do because, like I said, color is easy to quantify, right? Mm -hmm. You just have to take a picture of an of an animal and you can quantify how much of it is black, how much of it is red. <laughs> it's very different than trying to quantify something like toxicity. So we have great data for color patterns in snakes. Mm -hmm. And and certainly from our analyses, it appears, yes, absolutely, coloration has been gained and lost a number of times. And probably what's most exciting is if you look at the mimics, um, every time you see an origin of that black and red warning coloration in this, this clade that's not supposed to be toxic, it happens after those snakes are in the same place as the venomous coral snakes. And that's one of the key predictions of mimicry, right, is that you should get the origin of that coloration when they're in the same place as the things that they are mimicking. So if a mimic evolves that bright coloration that's, you know, very visible to birds in a place where there's no snakes that are toxic, right? So it's not toxic, there's no snakes that are toxic, it's just a, a bright stop sign that says, look at me, look at me, then uh, one of those one of those not wary birds, one of those reckless <laughs> birds will come over and eat it <laughs> very quickly with no negative side effects from that. One of the, the things that puzzled biologists for a long time is why you would ever find something that is a tasty mimic, right? It's not chemically defended, but it has this bright coloration. And um, actually, snake mimicry is the only uh, example of mimicry where we see uh, one of these undefended mimics, so one yeah. of these non-toxic ones that has the coloration completely in different, in different places that then use. There's no coral snakes anywhere near it. So it does happen. It does happen. But it's pretty rare. Yes. Okay. It's, it happens, but it's pretty rare. What about where these mimics and these models uh, do live together? Do you ever get a loss of that mimicry? Absolutely. So that's it's something that was very surprising, both for I was for me doing the analysis, but also um, for the people who who read about the results, because it's not what we would have predicted. Right, is yeah. that if you have both of the, you should only ever expect losses if you, if the mimics 
are in a geographic place where there are no coral snakes, and then they should lose the coloration, be a cryptic snake, and avoid predation by some other strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did find evidence that there are, there are losses even when the mimics are co-occurring with the with the coral snakes, um, and we have no explanation for that. We don't, but it's pretty common. Um, and that coloration is a very, um, a, a very easy trait to change. It's, we sort of the theory had predicted that wouldn't be true. That you know, if you get if a species enters a mimicry system, that's so beneficial. Why it should, leave? Right. It should <laughs> always be a mimic. And what we found is that it's sort of like a you know tilt world where species get ejected <laughs> right <laughs> from the from the system um, and go on to lose their coloration and become cryptic again. So why study? mimicry. What does this tell us about evolution? So there are two reasons why I study it. Um, one of them is because uh, mimicry is so common. Um, it's that you get changes in coloration that happen very widely across the whole snake tree, for example. And so um, instead of just seeing some kind of transition between, let's say, cryptic and and brightly colored, it didn't just happen once, it happened a lot of times. Um, and it happened in both directions. And that means it's almost like, um, uh, you know, it's almost like a laboratory experiment, except it's out in nature. You have replicates, right? You have independent origins that, um, that, that allow you to be able to look at what causes those, right? Do you get the same sort of, um, let's say, environmental variants or, or, you know, community assembly of different, like, yes, it has to be a, a community where there are coral snakes and mimics together, right? And that's the only time you ever see the transition to this new, this new coloration, right, is, is when coral snakes are there. You can actually test that, right? Because you have multiple, um, uh, multiple times that that has occurred over evolution, it gives you some some ability to actually do a test, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of just saying, well, it happened once, so I think this is why it was, mm-hmm. um, but I can't test it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the second reason that I study it is to um, sort of help spread awareness about what color patterns you can find and what kinds of snakes. Um, so one of the big challenges in the tropics where I work um, and one of the neglected tropical diseases is snake bite. Um, and so there- Is it actually classified as a disease? Wow. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, an underfunded one, right? Um, so, you know, mortality may not be super high for, let's say, something like a coral snake bite, but morbidity is. So people people have lots of long-lasting effects when they've been bitten by a snake. And so um, studies where people have gone into um, uh, uh, tropical forests in the, in the neotropics and they have actually looked at antibodies in people's blood like who live there all the time, to see what proportion of them have been bitten by snakes. Um, by the time they sort of reach a more advanced age, almost everybody has been bitten by a snake, wow. right? And so it's a, it's a, it's a. And your body tracks that. Yeah, and wow. you'll you'll have anti antibodies basically for the rest of your life um, against like against snake snakes. bite immunity almost. Yeah. I'm not sure it helps you out much if you get bit again. Yeah. That's sort of controversial. Um, oh. There are definitely people who think it does. Yeah. <laughs> um, don't try that. Yeah, don't try that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, there's all sorts of folklore because people have a hard time telling the models from the mimics, right? So in some places um, where, let's say, the coral snakes are active more often during the day and the mimics are active more often during the night, you get folklore that develops like, oh, if a snake bites you um, at night, you're okay, right? They're not venomous except during the day, and it's not because the snakes are changing themselves their toxicity it's because different snakes are being confused as the same snake the same yeah. species and then in other place you get the exact opposite activity pattern so you get the exact opposite folklore right um, and so this idea that coral snakes can come in many colors 
right? And the mimics can come in many colors and sort of an awareness of that to help people avoid snake bite um, is is something that gets that that is helped by you know the research that I'm doing, just trying to quantify what color patterns exist and where should you expect them to occur. That's I did super, not that's know super that cool, about. Yeah. yeah. One of the one of the other cool things that that my research allows me to do is that um, we've looked at the relationship between how many mimics you will find in a place if you have a given number of coral snakes. So there's there are some places in in uh, South America where you can get up to ten or eleven coral snake species that all live in the same place at the same time. There are other places that have none or one or two all the way the whole range, right? Um, and you can do the same for mimics, right? You can you can count up how many live in a certain place and um, using one of those I can predict the other. So let's say I go to a place and I catch a bunch of snakes and there are 10 mimics. I can tell you from the relationship between those two variables, there should be two coral snake species that live there. Um, we hope to get to the point where we could also estimate what colors patterns you should expect. Given the color patterns that are in the mimics, what color patterns should you expect in the in the, in the the coral snakes? Um, so there's actually some predictive component that, that is pretty interesting. That's really cool and powerful in the field of evolutionary biology. Like that's just one of the big out there questions, like how predictable is evolution? And like, yeah, that's... That's really cool. That was that graph that you showed. Yeah. That's so as you know, it's hard in science because there's a lot of variation. Evolutionary biologists love variation because it's sort of the you know the 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 raw material for selection. Um, but understanding variation and understanding what predicts variation um, is usually very messy for us. And only a few times in my career have I gotten very clear results, and this is one of them. <laughs> yeah. What is the coolest thing? that you think you have found about coral snakes and mimics to you? This is a nerdy answer. I um, love it. It does <laughs> not actually come from my data. I just love watching animals in the wild. You know, when you're a young scientist, especially if you hadn't, haven't had a lot of exposure to nature, you read about things in books, right? So I grew up on the West Coast where we didn't even have things like fireflies, right? And so you'd read about fireflies in books, right? And be like, I would love to see these someday, right? Um, and I felt that way about coral snakes, right? I read about coral snakes long before I ever saw one. And I always wondered what it would be like to actually see one in the forest. Would they be as brightly colored as I thought they'd be, right? And, and would they be visible? I mean, what would it be like? And actually, the first brightly colored snake I caught was a mimic. Um, and it was in Nevada um, at a place that Kinsey's actually been to, <laughs> Lovelock, um, which is along I-80, which is otherwise just a, this place in the desert, right? And we were catching lizards, actually. And it was sunset, so we were about to be finished. We we're kind of wandering back to our place where we'd set up camp. And the, the sunlight was coming from behind me, right, and, and lighting up the sort of rocks and vegetation in front of me. And all of a sudden, I see this bright red and black banded snake spread between two rocks. And I went, <gasps> OK, there's no coral snakes there, so I knew it was going to be OK. <laughs> and, and I just could not believe it. Looked, it lit up like a traffic light. Right? It was so obvious, and I, and I was like, it's exactly like I read in books, right? And I it's ran over and I, I caught it, and I was like, this is the snake I've been looking for all my life. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, you know, it's, and it's that way in the tropics, too. Like, when you see one, you see one, and they're very visible, and, it, and, and that's... It's a very visceral response. And, and for me, who wants to see them, it's, it's you know, it's this, it's like a, the most amazing treasure hunt you could possibly imagine, and you find one. When the morning breaks, I chase away the snakes, is it my fate? 
to dream of This has been Radio Bio with Dr. Allison davis Roboski. Thanks for listening. This episode of Radio Bio was produced by Dean Wu. The editors were Yumari Vasquez and Jeff Lauder. The interviewers were Kinsey Brock and Jeff Lauder. Episode artwork was created by Kinsey Brock. Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, and the Graduate Division at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radiobio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcasts at www.radiobio.net.